So this morning, uh, we're going to turn our attention to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, this summer, we're making our way through Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth. Stories and symbols, metaphors and rituals are some of the ways that we as human beings make sense of the world. Help us prioritize what's important, pointing to things that make meaning in our life. We all have them. We all have rituals, whether we would call them or that or not. Uh, the late Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, had a ritual in which he would wake up every morning, lock eyes with himself in the mirror, and say to himself out loud, if today were the last day of your life, would you be happy with what you're about to do? I also read about a, a guy named Valentino Rossi. He races motorcycles, and it's said that before each race, he kneels down before his bike and has an intimate conversation with it. And sometimes uh, we have rituals in our life that remind us of what's actually important. I have this ritual that I do each weekend. Some may call it silly, but before I I come here on the weekend, I have in my office a small vial of anointing oil from Israel, and I take a dab of it, put it on my finger, place it on my forehead, not because I believe that the oil is magical, but I I also I do it to remind myself that I'm not up here just to give a TED talk, but maybe something a bit more a bit more sacred. The Christian Church has a ritual. It's a ritual which is, in many ways, a proclamation of the substance of what it is that we believe. It goes by many names. Some call it communion. Others call it the Lord's Supper. Some refer to it as the Eucharist, which simply means Thanksgiving. When I was a kid, I grew up in a church that had a very formal process for receiving communion, and I I took it very seriously. Uh, it was on my mind a lot for, for some reason. I even remember being like a little kid, so fascinated with the idea of communion that I would sit at our kitchen table with a bag of Lay's potato chips. And I would look for the ones that were small and circular that looked like the, the communion host. And I would, I would be both the priest and the receiver. I would take that small chip in my hand and I would say to myself, the body of Christ. And then I would turn and be come the receiver, I'd take it, take it, make the sign of the cross. And I wasn't like, I wasn't mocking it. It wasn't trivial. It was, I was, I was so intrigued by this event in our church called communion. But as I got older, I started to ask some questions as most older kids do. And one of the questions I asked was, was the way we practice communion almost too exclusive? So then I started attending a Protestant church, and in the Protestant church, I didn't get out of my seat to receive communion. I stayed in my seat, and trays were passed, and there were these weird little plastic cups filled with grape juice, not wine, which I thought was a ripoff because it was the one time I could underage drink and get away with it, but there were these pieces of bread in the middle and not a whole lot of instruction the pastor would get up and say, if you're a Christian, you can, you can do this. And I asked a different set of questions. Like, is this almost too inclusive? Too common? So can 
the celebration of communion be a bit more open, a little less formal, and yet retain the holiness and sacredness of what it's meant to be? Because the substance of the Christian message is found in this sacred moment, and that's what the Apostle Paul is addressing today in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have been differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. Now, it's it's important to kind of understand the specific context here because every passage of the Bible is contextual. It's timely and timeless. And so in this particular passage, what the Apostle Paul is addressing is the gathering together of believers for worship or what we might simply call going to church. Now, At the center of the issue here is there are divisions that strike at the identity of who they are. Now, the divisions that they're experiencing here has nothing to do with, with divisions over issues, but the gulf that exists between the rich and the poor as they gather together. So when we turn in this particular case to the matter of celebrating communion or the Lord's Supper, their behavior is contradicting the very thing that they say they believe. Now, in this particular time, church gatherings were not in buildings, they were in private homes. There were no church buildings. And homes in the Roman world, Corinth was a Roman colony, were designed to reinforce social status and to separate the classes so that servants and owners, guests and kitchen staff, citizens of higher social class and citizens of lower social class were divided into different parts of the home. This would include in the church, not just private parties. And as a result, the different Sections would also be served different types of food based on their social class. So if you were of a higher social class, you would be put in a better room and be served better food. You'd probably get like, I don't know, Wagyu beef. And if you were maybe of a lower social class, you would be put in a different room and you would be served spam and ramen or whatever's left over, I don't know, And this not only happened in society, but this was happening in the Christian church during the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now keep in mind, communion was not a standalone event like we make it today. Communion was served as the part of a larger meal. And so what's happening specifically here, those of the upper class that had more free time would gather early and they would gorge themselves on food and drink and then the working class would show up later and they would get the scraps that were left over, often missing the communion meal as a whole. And so 
What's being addressed here is when you come together as the church to share in this celebration, wait on one another, don't divide yourself because the substance of the Christian message is found in this one sacred moment. So from there he writes, verse 23, for I receive from the Lord what I pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, when Jesus introduced this covenant, he did so during the Jewish festival of Passover, specifically during the celebration of the Seder meal, which was the sacred meal of of Passover. And so he holds bread and he holds a cup and he says, this, what I'm about to do is for you. I'm about to redeem all of humanity. I'm about to redeem you by my suffering. So as Jesus holds the Passover bread, which was a reminder of what God did for the Israelites during the Exodus. The bread now comes to represent his broken body. It's a profound mystery that we're challenged to think deeply about. I wonder, what does it take to think deeply about those things of substance in our society. To think deeply about our faith. I think one of the crises that we're facing as human beings, generally, but maybe more specifically in the church, is we're losing the ability to think deeply and reflectively about those things that matter. Now, granted, in the first century, they did not have the distractions that that we have. But nonetheless, when I consider my convictions, when I consider my beliefs, are my convictions and beliefs the result of sitting with the scriptures, creating space to hear God's voice through his word, creating moments of quiet to think deeply about what it is that I'm reading in the scriptures, or are my convictions simply the result of some regurgitated thought that I read on a one-page devotional or heard someone say in a sermon. Because what we're talking about is our source of spiritual nourishment, that which replenishes our soul. Like when I'm physically hungry, what do I do? I I eat food, right? You, You like to eat food? I mean, I do. I love it. But sometimes if I'm in a hurry, I don't have time for lunch. I, like I keep a granola bar in my desk and if I'm really hungry, I just grab that granola bar and eat it really quick or a protein bar, most of which aren't very good. They do the job. They take away the hunger pangs, but it's not very satisfying. It's certainly not an experience. And I'm not going to tell you about it. I'm not going to say, man, you're not going to leave that granola bar I ate today at lunch. It was awesome. But there is something I would tell you about. I would tell you about Sunday dinners at Nana's house when I was growing up. Because Sunday dinner at at Nana's house, my Italian grandma, they were an event. They were an experience. The extended family would be there. You'd walk into the kitchen during Sunday dinner at Nana's house and there'd be this huge pot, this stainless steel pot filled with homemade pot 
pasta sauce. And she would be in there rolling meatballs. She'd cook meatballs and sausage, and then she would put the meat in the sauce, and it would cook for hours in the smell. Can you smell it? So good. And we would sit down at her dining room table, and she'd bring out the sauce and the pasta and bread from the Italian store up the street and the cheese, and we would eat and get so good. Then the pasta dishes would be cleared. Then she'd bring out roast beef, corn, mashed potatoes. It was always an event at Nana's house. Now, I, I would never talk about the experience I had with the granola bar at my desk during lunch because nobody cares. It's not noteworthy. But it's, it's been 10 years since my Nana has passed and we're still talking about dinner at Nana's house. So when I consider the way that I feed my soul, is it more like a granola bar sitting at my desk at lunch or is it more like dinner at Nana's house? See, because one of the desires I have for myself is that I would, I, would find a, I would find a deep place for my faith to live. And I love that phrase, but I also hate it because I have conversations all the time. People say like, Mike, I just want to go deep in my faith. And I always say, well, what do you mean by that? Because it means a lot of different things for a lot of different people. But what I can promise you is the most well-crafted sermon on the weekend and a one-page devotional here and there is not going to take you to that place. That's more of a granola bar at your desk rather than Sunday dinner at Nana's house. Because see, of all the people in my life that I know that I would describe as spiritually rich and deep, they got to that place because they spend uninterrupted time in the presence of the one who gave his life for you. You see, when I live my life like that, when I come together with you for communion, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, it means something more. It means something different. Jesus said, this, this cup, this cup is the new covenant given in my blood. Well, when Jesus used the word cup, it wasn't simply a reference to a drinking vessel. The word cup in the ancient world was often used figuratively to describe a violent death. This cup, this violent death that I'm about to experience is to establish a new covenant with you. Now, that word covenant is, is a rich word. It's a heavy word. It's a dense word. It's not one that we, we use often because we don't really have anything like it in our Western culture. Now, in the Old Testament, covenants were common. Covenants were kind of an agreement, but so much more. If I were to make a covenant with you, I would first say I'd like to cut a covenant with you because covenants were always sealed in blood. They were, in a way, a contract, but they were always a contract established on the base of relationship. I mean, I have, I have contracts right now in my life, but they're all economical. They have nothing to do with relationship, right? But if you were to establish a covenant with someone in the Old Testament, you were establishing a relationship that was filled with promises and conditions, but also consequences if those conditions were unmet. The, the closest thing that we have in Western society to a covenant is marriage. But even so, to get out of a marriage in Western culture is way easier to get out of than a covenant in the Old Testament. 
Now, in the Bible, covenants provide the framework for how the whole biblical story holds together. In the Bible, there are six covenants uh, that were made, five in the Old Testament and then one in the New. In the Old Testament, there was a covenant made with Adam in the Garden of Eden. There was a covenant made with Noah in which God said, I will no longer destroy humanity. A covenant made with Abraham in which Abraham was promised land and blessing and he would become a nation, the nation of Israel. There was a covenant made with Moses after freedom from Egypt and a covenant made with David. Through David, blessing would come to Israel. And that was it until Jesus. And then Jesus comes and he starts using the language of covenant with his disciples I'm going to cut a new covenant with you, which would have been shocking to those that heard it, because what he was suggesting was, I'm the Messiah. I am the one that you've been waiting for. See, there was an ancient prophecy in the book of Jeremiah that all Jewish people would have known. Jeremiah says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So as Jesus sat at that Passover Seder dinner with his disciples, and he took bread and he took a cup, he's essentially saying, my death will be the fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 31. This will be the covenant of all covenants. As he sat at the table, with his disciples. Now, all six covenants in some way are ritualistically tied to a table and to food. In the Garden of Eden, God makes a covenant with Adam and spreads out before him all of creation and says, eat from whatever tree that you like. It's part of the covenant, except that one. In covenants two, three, four, and five, it is established on the table of sacrifice. Because this covenant demanded an atonement for the sins of people. And so the temporary solution was the sacrifice of animals because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But then Jesus comes to the table of communion. So for the Corinthians, to celebrate that very act, the Lord's Supper, they would need to take its nature much more seriously because it is the celebration of a covenant through Christ's sacrifice, and it needs to begin with the way they're treating one another because all covenants are about relationships. The very substance of our faith is found in this one act. It's not found in our building. It's not found in singing the songs you like. It's not even found in the sermon. It's found in in this. Because when we take the bread and drink the cup, we are actually proclaiming the sermon of all sermons. Verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Every time I take, every time I receive communion, I'm announcing the message of the gospel and the message of the new covenant, which is a powerful statement. We do things all the time 
to make statements, don't we? I mean, like, for instance, I'll probably make a statement on October 30th at 7.20 when the Bills beat the Packers. I'll probably make a statement by wearing a Bills jersey and reminding you all of the superior football team. But by taking communion, I'm making a statement about what it is that I believe. And so we read now in verse 27, So then, because of all this, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if you were more discerning with regard to ourselves, you would not come under judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. The word unworthy is not a reference to who we are as people, but a, a reference to the manner in which communion was being celebrated. It was not being treated with reverence. It was being seen as an afterthought. During communion, those that were of higher social class were humiliating those of lower social class by separating them. Some were even getting drunk and committing gluttony during communion. I mean, can you imagine? And so the challenge is, are, are you guys in Corinth living in a way that is in alignment with your identification as followers of Christ? So examine yourself. Take a hard look. Are you living in alignment with the covenant? Because what God has invited us into is this relationship of all relationships. It was one that began with Adam in the Garden of Eden in which he was invited to live within the lush trees of God's provision. In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord takes Adam, puts him in the garden to work it and says, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden except the tree from the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from that tree, you'll die. And Adam is invited through a covenant to participate in the life and freedom of God, but he, he chose to forfeit that because he wanted to define goodness and life on his own terms. The covenant was broken. And the way God felt about that is recorded in Jeremiah 31 when he talks about a husband being betrayed by a wife. Listen, if I were to cheat on my wife, first of all, I could promise you there'd probably be blood because covenants always have blood and probably a lot of it. But there would be consequences and pain associated with that act. So if you want to know God's heart when his covenant is broken, think about the severing of a relationship between a husband and a wife. So then how, how then do we get back to that place? Well, God establishes in the Old Testament a series of feasts, a series of meals that are reminders of the covenant. Meals that serve as a way to regularly participate in thanksgiving and praise and worship and remembrance. And secondly, to remind his people of his covenant. All those who were just a shadow of what Jesus came to establish. Because it was at one of those very feasts the Feast of Passover, that Jesus introduces something radically new, more life-giving. Now, during the days of the apostles, communion was celebrated daily, a daily reminder of an eternal covenant. 
years ago, my, my wife and I found ourselves kind of in a hard place. And one of the ways that we kind of worked through that hard place is we took communion in our home daily as a reminder of our intimacy with Christ. Very much like those in the early church took communion as a daily reminder of their relationship with Christ. But then something happened historically that shifted everything. In the year 312 AD, the Roman emperor Constantine legalized Christianity. And when he legalized Christianity, churches no longer met in homes because elaborate cathedrals were built and organization increased and there was the rise of ceremony and ritual and tradition and no longer was communion a simple meal practiced in a simple home with simple followers, but it became a sacrament with laws and regulations surrounding it. And so I wonder what it would look like for communion to become, once again, a proclamation of a covenant. A covenant that we live throughout the week. So I'm going to invite you now to take your communion elements that you had when you, were, when you walked in. And as you hold them in your hand, let's first hear the words of the Apostle Paul to examine ourselves. Am I living in alignment with his covenant? And if there are things that are getting in the way of that alignment, we are invited to simply offer those up to him. And he is faithful and just to forgive. So take a moment now moment of self-examination and reflection. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he gave thanks to God and said, this is my body, which is given for you. When you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. After supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the establishment of a new covenant between God and his people. Whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup together. So now, God, we stand together in your presence As we've eaten this bread and we've taken from the cup, we're reminded of this eternal relationship you've desired to establish with us. And so would you help me, would you help us to live the covenant each week? That what we celebrated today is not an afterthought, but a reminder of something bigger something much more life-giving. And so now, God, may my thoughts 
and my actions this week be in alignment with that relationship you died to establish? Amen. Amen.